Humanity in healthcare is is seeing and being seen and hearing and being heard and healing and being healed. More human healthcare means I know what matters to my patients, not just what's the matter with them. And more human healthcare means extending kindness, compassion and fair treatment regardless of my faith, nationality and race. Remembering that underneath it all, we're all human. More human healthcare means remembering everyone involved is human. As staff, it would mean the umbrella of safety and compassion is extended to me. As a patient, it would mean not to be unfavorably cared for because of who I am. Humanized healthcare for me is more than just dressing my wounds. It's holding my hand, looking into my eyes, asking how I feel, just checking that I'm not scared, treating me like a human being. Welcome to the Humanising Health podcast series from the Point of Care Foundation. Today's episode asks the question, what can we learn about humanising care from the experience of COVID and the setting up of the Nightingale Hospitals in 2020? I'm Beth Fitzsimons and I'm the Chief Executive of the Point of Care Foundation. And today I am joined by Hayley Hughes, who's the Associate Director of Patient-Centred Care at Somerset NHS Foundation Trust. Hayley was also for a period of time the Head of Compassionate Care at the Nightingale Hospital in Bristol. Today, Hayley's in conversation with Jocelyn Cornwell, who was the founder of the Point of Care Foundation and, and until recently, its chief executive. What we'd like to learn from Jocelyn and Hayley is what can we learn about the mission to humanise care and how to achieve it from the experience of COVID and most notably the setting up of the Nightingale Hospitals, which are ostensibly the least human environment possible. when I went to the Bristol Nightingale I didn't really know what my role would be I just knew I wanted to offer myself to support the project Um, and on arrival was told oh you'll be responsible for compassionate care so eventually I was given the title of head of compassionate care after a, a week or so. I think compassionate care means different things to different people and of course it means showing empathy and kindness but I think it means much more than that. I think it means it's more about, for me, empowerment of patients and families so that they're able to participate in the care that we're delivering to them. And I think compassionate care is treating people as human beings and as equal human beings. I think for too long in healthcare, we have sustained a paternalistic approach and and there's been a power imbalance for a long time in healthcare. And I think compassionate care means an equal partnership between clinicians and patients and their families and kind of moving away from the consultant as God approach and the control that we have as clinicians in the clinical environment you know, even down to things like timing when you're going to get up and when you're going to have your breakfast. And, and you know, we control everything as healthcare professionals. And I think compassion means that we empower patients to make their own decisions and their own choices. Um, so it's more than the kindness, which absolutely should be part of compassion. It's empowerment from my perspective. And in terms of the Nightingale, obviously that 
became quite difficult because the patients that we were anticipating caring for in the Nightingale would be very much disempowered mm. um, because they would be unconscious on the ventilator. So the model of care for the Bristol Nightingale was that all patients that came in were were ventilated therefore their level of disempowerment was beyond anything you can possibly imagine mm-hmm. um, so it, it, it was really challenging to identify how we could ensure that those patients received compassionate care particularly from my definition of it but my objectives I kind of set out a number of object- objectives and it very quickly became clear to me that the most important thing was going to be maintaining the connection between patients and their families and the ability for us as the clinical staff providing the care to see the patient through the eyes of their families because we didn't we you know they were coming to us they were going to come to us from from other organizations we didn't know the patient beforehand we've got no connection with them they were going to arrive with us without us having any ability to have a conversation with them to understand them before they arrived with us so our our only way of being able to do that would be to understand them through their family's eyes so that connection to me was really important and through that connection, then we could ensure that the patient's preferences and wishes and, and you know, what they held dear to them, we understood. And, and, and I think it needed to be projected really loud and clear because it was, it was going to be or is going to be a highly technical clinical environment mm. where the humanity of the patient could easily be lost. And, and so that, that connection was for me the most important thing and and secondly you know thinking about the families at home unable to know what's happening with their loved one you know the most extraordinary extraordinarily terrifying time in their lives no doubt when you know somebody that they love most in the world has been shipped off in an ambulance and they've had Mm-hmm. horrible conversation to be told that their loved one is going on a ventilator and then mm. going to the nightingale you know an absolute <clears throat> time for families and and being unable to visit being unable to see their loved one you know just felt absolutely traumatizing and you know the risk of long-term psychological harm for those people you know could not be underestimated so one of my other objectives was to to have a, a proactive, informative and compassionate communication strategy mm-hmm. that enabled families to feel that they understood what was going on every step of the way. And, and part of that was also to consider the, the needs of the clinical staff as well. So, you know, we knew that there was a real risk of cognitive overload within that environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so we out, set out to have a family liaison team that would build relationships with those family members so they would speak to them on a regular basis and build a relationship with those family members a relationship of trust and that one would, would enable complex messages to be passed on to families about their loved ones but not necessarily by the clinical team so that it could be taken outside of the clinical environment and that would then show compassion to the clinical staff as much as to the families because it it would have been challenging to have those difficult conversations on a regular basis with families when you were already in a really difficult environment and lastly I suppose I really wanted to make sure that our patients were humanized I've talked about that a little bit but really to understand the patients and I think 
you know, we would never have understood our patients if we hadn't considered, I mean, we, we didn't have any patients, but we would never have been able to understand our patients if we hadn't considered building a picture of that patient yeah. um, through their family. And I think it's really important to say that um, we knew at the point that we were developing our processes that up to 50% of our patients were not going to survive. And what was really important was that we created supportive end-of-life care that really took into consideration what the patients would have wished. And part of that was making sure that we could enable loved ones to visit their their loved ones at the end of life and which was something that was not considered at the beginning so when I got there that hadn't been considered they were absolutely no visiting and for me I could not even contemplate the fact that you wouldn't be able to say goodbye to a loved one so that was one of my other priorities in terms of compassion Mm -hmm. what worked for me was putting myself into the position of a family member in that situation mm-hmm. um, and considering how I would want this to play out. And and that was what drove me to do the things that I did to plan the processes that I did was considering how it would feel for me. And could you just briefly describe for us what that environment is like, both physically and um, visually, if you like? Yeah. <clears throat> I think probably a lot of people have seen pictures of the XL in London and, you know, there's been pictures out in the media now of the Nightingale hospitals, but actually I don't think anything quite prepares you for it until you're, Mm. you're in there. It is vast. It is row upon row of single pods, but there is no privacy or dignity. So, you know, in one pod, you can see what's happening in, in other pods opposite you. It was white. It was the same colour. The, it there was. It's it's so hard to describe. I mean, it, I think the amount of people that came and walked around and were absolutely stunned by it, by the size of it, by the the sheer sort of coldness of it, mm-hmm. and that actually that kind of increased the the motivation to ensure that because because it didn't feel like the sort of environment where you would see compassionate care take place. Mm-hmm. It felt like a conveyor belt. It felt like patients mm-hmm. would come in through the door on a ventilator, be treated and go out another door. Mm. And, and, and the bits in between were very technical, very clinical and probably amazing and life-saving. Um, mm. But the compassionate, dignified care that we would hope for all of our patients would be difficult mm. to achieve in that environment. What do you think you managed to do particularly well in terms of planning to provide compassionate care. What are you, what are you particularly proud of and confident um, about? Well, um, well, I think there's a number of things. I mean, I think I'm proud of, of, of all of the things that I have been able to do. I think particularly proud of being able to influence a group of very focused um, intensivists that supportive compassionate end-of-life care was important mm-hmm. um, particularly the environment in which we were going to be caring for patients at end of life so I was able to persuade 
with support from a, a palliative care doctor, I have to say, I was mm-hmm. able to persuade them to change their minds about once they'd made a decision to withdraw life-saving treatment that the patient would just die there, that we actually needed a different environment that was quieter, that was away from the, the really hectic clinical environment where patients could die with in peace and with dignity. Mm-hmm which then actually enabled us to have um, a more effective visiting policy. And I think that probably for me is the thing I'm most proud of because I really struggled at times with the overwhelming pressure from the intensivists who were amazing and, you know, clearly focused on what they needed to do, which was bring those patients in and save their lives. But it was, I think, the that kind of eclipsed at times the need to make sure that the care was compassionate Mm -hmm. and I think that probably is the thing I'm most proud of is that I changed their minds and I think by the end of it people really accepted that it was really important that we we provide compassionate end-of-life care and I you know I don't doubt for a minute that they they would have been motivated to make sure the end of Mm -hmm. patients lives were was dignified but I think there needed to be a, a voice that told them that this just isn't an a inevitable result 50, mm-hmm. of 50% of our patients, that we could actually ensure that however horrendous the situation was, we could provide good end-of-life care. So could you say a bit about the provision that you were then able to plan for once once that job of getting the intensivists alongside with what you wanted to do? Um, yeah, so we, uh, we were able to identify an area that was away from, quite significantly away from where they were planning to have the first intensive care beds that was kind of almost self-contained. So it, it was very much... Um, it is very much a uniformed environment where that you know each pod matches the next but there was one small area fortuitously that just had 12 beds and had an entrance at, at the far end that was not the normal entrance and and could be self-contained so we i was able to persuade the senior team that i wanted that area to be end of life we then set about thinking about how we would make the environment less clinical. So around artwork and making sure that we use different colours. So we, we, were, we were going to use coloured sheets and things like that to make the environment look mm-hmm. different. We were encouraging, we were going to encourage families to send in pictures, to send in music. Mm-hmm. And, and that was going to be able to happen because we'd moved the area to a different environment. And it also, you know, I think the the fact that it was far away from where the critical care area was going to be meant that it was a much lower lo- noise level. It would be a much lower noise level, so the noise would be less. It would be a more colourful environment. There would be pictures. It would just be different to the clinical area. And that would have been, and we called it something different as well. So we called it the butterfly area. We wanted to make it very distinct from the critical care area. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would have, would have, the idea of that was also to minimise the inevitable distress that the families would feel because we, 
genuinely did not want a family member to come into the vastness of the nightingale and see everything that they would have seen, which would have been traumatised and it would have been a traumatic time as it was. So we wanted to make sure that that what they saw was minimised as well and that where they were saying goodbye to their loved one was as comfortable and nice as it could possibly be under the Mm -hmm. circumstances. Mm -hmm. And so you actually got approval for visiting at at the end of life, which which at the outset was unthinkable. Thankfully, the chief nurse absolutely agreed with, with me and we both felt really strongly that it was so important that we were able to enable families to say goodbye to their loved ones so the first the initial plan was that they would be able to visit once for 20 minutes and we had a really kind of strict way that we would bring them into the hospital they were having to wear full PPE which again was another concern that we had because that would have that would have been a barrier between the patient and and their loved one but as time went on you know I think people were beginning to think more pragmatically about things and that was really great because you know this is a very black and white situation we were in a covid hospital and i was prepared to accept that there would need to be some restrictions in place and i was prepared to accept that families would have to wear ppe and we were doing what we could to minimize the trauma of that but we had a new infection control lead start about halfway through who who was very understanding of the compassionate approach. And because we'd moved the end-of-life area to an area that was a significant distance from the critical care area, we established actually that they would not need to wear full PPE and that actually they could stay longer because the exposure to the virus would be absolutely minimised by being in that area. So in the end, they just had to wear a mask the plan was that they would have to wear a mask they wouldn't even need to wear gloves so that was really wonderful for me because I think being able to hold Mm. hands being able to touch is so Mm. important isn't it and 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 we were going to enable visitors to come more than once if the patient had Mm. a prolonged end of life so it wasn't just going to be that last Mm -hmm. patient this is the last time you'll see your Mm -hmm. loved one so it was it was really good that people began to really see the value in this and and even the most risk averse was prepared to consider our options on this and and work with me on a risk assessment so that we could minimize the risk but also consider the needs of of patients Mm. and families Mm. at this fascinating Mm. so is there anything that you feel you would like to do better if you have the opportunity next time What was amazing was that I was able to do whatever I thought was right for our patients, which was absolutely refreshing. I was not bound by bureaucracy or restrictions. It was mine to do what I felt was right for our patients. I think now if we were told we had to stand up, stand the nightingale up, I would do a lot more work around talking to patients and families that have experienced being in a COVID ward or who have experienced maybe losing somebody to COVID. I would really want to find a way of talking to them about their experience and and if there's anything that I could do to change what we've already got in place that would 
reflect those people's experiences and I think at the time there probably wasn't enough people to be able to talk to about that but I think now we're in a position where you know people are sharing their experiences and I would want to make sure that I listen to what their experiences Mm. were and I think from a personal perspective um I'm quite a confident person in my day-to-day work I I am never uh restricted at speaking up I I I feel that I speak up in lots of situations but I suddenly found myself in an environment with some very strong-willed people and it took me a while to really find my voice I was working away beavering away in the background you know doing the things that I needed to do but felt often that I was just doing the fluffy stuff or they might have perceived me as just doing the fluffy stuff and you know sometimes felt that I was maybe and not as confident as I could have been but I, I I feel now if we were stood up and I were to go back that I would really feel confident because I I've now gone back to my day-to-day work and seen the impact of patients and families not having good proactive communication and you know know that it could have long-lasting effect on those people so I feel really empowered myself now to to speak up and be more forceful and strong in my approach. I think that's probably the things that didn't go so well. Mm. I needed to find my voice a bit sooner. So should we come to your reflections on what that whole experience has to say to normal practice, everyday practice in other settings? Absolutely. And I've thought a lot about this and Mm. and I've tried not to go back to my day-to-day work and just say, right, we're doing all of this new now. Because people will be sick to death of me saying, oh, I let the nightingale, I did this. And, you know, I recognise that. But I think the thing that, well, there's two things probably that I have taken away and that I absolutely think will resonate across different different settings and that is that proactive communication with families is absolutely vital and that we need to make sure that we genuinely listen to and inform our patients and families and empower them to help them make decisions and I say genuinely listen because I think you know in the in the NHS we've got a tendency to demand feedback from from our patients and their families and and we do it through a variety of ways but predominantly through a completely ineffective friends and family test and and I gen I don't think that's genuinely listening to patients and their families so I really think that we need to find ways of doing that so one of the things that I've done going back to my team is that once our visiting is restrictions are lifted I've got 12 team members across patient experience and concerns and complaints and and each team member is going to be allocated a group of wards that they'll be they'll partner with and they will go and listen to staff and patients proactively rather than um, waiting for a concern to come in or waiting for a piece of feedback yeah. and and we are we are genuinely intending to use that feedback that we get from patients mm-hmm. and their families to influence what we do as a team, but also to influence the exec team and, and influence the the teams that we'll be partnered with. Being able to get on the front foot with this rather than being on the back foot all the time and a ward clerk's continuously taking multiple phone calls, but actually us being the ones that are phoning mm. 
proactive mm. zoning mm. family members felt like a really simple but effective way of doing that so I'm working on that with my teams at the moment and then secondly I think for and you know this won't be new to to, to most people I think you know it's almost like repeating things but and um, the importance of understanding the patient as an individual and humanizing them on a practical level what what do you think can be done to humanize the patient in that environment so i'm a nurse and and i know how busy it is on the wards um and and, and in the in teams and and you know people get so kind of um bogged down in in the processes that, that that sometimes it's hard for them to lift their heads and see beyond the processes that they're doing I mean I think there's some really simple things like rather than just going through admission records when you're admitting a patient it's like to really sit and listen and understand them and also to understand them through their families if they have a dementia or, or if they're if they're not conscious you know having a real understanding about patients so things like this is me documents shouldn't necessarily just be for patients that have dementia why can't yeah. we sit down and talk to patients about their their history about their what they did for work you know we just don't have time to do that and I think it's important that we make time to do that the other thing is about listening so about genuinely listening and involving patients in 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 shaping the care that we deliver in in and genuinely in in decision making as well I think we pay lip service to having patients on in in meetings and you know patient representatives it needs to be more effective than that it actually needs to be real involvement true involvement and and that's something I'm working on at the moment that I was working on before the pandemic was really properly trying to involve patients and service users in uh, developing and shaping our care and I want to find a way to make sure that those that aren't normally heard are heard something that I'm really working hard on at the moment and and something that will be part of my objectives for future weeks and months once we're able to sit down and talk to patients and their families again. So just thinking back over our conversation, Haley, is there anything that we haven't covered that you'd like to say? Um, I suppose the only thing that I would want to say and to share is that I felt I was absolutely stunned, probably for the first time in my NHS career, um, the the freedom to work across organisations to work across um, and not, not just NHS organisations so we had private companies we had the army multiple different NHS organisations the barriers were lifted you know those artificial barriers that we have in place that we all see every day of our work were just lifted and nothing happened for them to be lifted they were just lifted and all of us can do that every day we shouldn't be restricted by by artificial barriers because we're in different organisations, we should try hard to work together. And I hope that sticks with me and I hope it sticks with the other people that worked at Nightingale. Just don't ever be told you can't do something because, you know, that's in a different organisation or we're not commissioned to do that. You know, we, we, should, we will work together to do what's right for our patients and their families. And I won't ever have anybody tell me that I can't do that now because I know we can and there's nothing stopping us. 
Jocelyn and Haley, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. Let's hope that these really important lessons can be learned from this terrible time. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. I hope you enjoyed listening to the Point of Care Foundation Humanising Health podcast today. If you'd like to know more about the Foundation and our mission to humanise healthcare, please visit our website at www.pointofcarefoundation.org.uk, all one word, or follow us on Twitter. Or if you'd like to share your own experience of humanising health, we'd love to hear from you. If you liked what you heard, please join us again next time when we'll be talking about what a more human healthcare system looks like from the perspective of people who have long-term conditions. Until then, thanks for joining us and goodbye.